Good evening. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. We're going to continue where we left off last week in Luke chapter 5. I'm going to go ahead and read, picking up at verse 17 through 26. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed uh, a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find out how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up his what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. We began to look at this account in Luke last week, and we took a, a pause to address this issue of the Pharisees, because he has a rather interesting audience here with him in this event. They're the Pharisees, and we talked about them last week, so I'm not going to rehash that. And as he describes here as the teachers of the law, you might have a translation that says the lawyers. They're referred to later in verse 21 as the scribes. These are also an elite group. In fact, they are kind of the elite teachers in the community. They are the ones that not just copied out the Bible, but they were the Studiers of it, and uh, like the Pharisees, were very knowledgeable uh, of the Word of God. And so, uh, a very, uh, again, an elite group that is here, uh, compared to, say, some of the past events that Luke has recorded, at least he hasn't named really uh, these, these uh, groups before. And they're there at the house, and they're listening, and they're from all over, from, from Galilee, we would expect that, but also from Judea, which is, of course, uh, in the south, and Jerusalem particularly, which is just the hub and the heart of uh, Jewish worship. Uh, and that's where any of the, the, the greatest of the teachers would have been centered there in Jerusalem. And these are the ones that are there to hear him. Now, they're not the only ones there. Uh, there are a multitude, as we see, uh, that are there listening to Jesus. Because Jesus' primary ministry is a ministry of teaching. Uh, and we've noted that earlier in our study of Luke. And verse 17 ends with this, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, I don't know about you, but I read things like that, and I'm thinking to myself, Luke, why have you put that in there? 
If you think about it, that's kind of a curious phrase to just suddenly be inserted there. And yet I know because the Holy Spirit is the one directing and guiding uh, the entire uh, of the entirety of Scripture that there is a reason for everything, and everything is there uh, with purpose. And it's of course uh, beholden to us to to be in the Word, to to meditate on it, and by God's Spirit giving us uh, wisdom, guiding us in His Word to ask ourselves, what makes Luke mention this here? What's he trying to point out? That the power of the Lord is there uh, at that time to heal. I mean, there's no question that that the Lord's power to heal has already been previously seen, that, that we saw that uh, with Simon's mother-in-law in chapter 4, verse 38 and 39. He healed her of her very intense fever. Uh, we saw him healing the masses in chapter 4, verse 40, and again in chapter 5, verse 15. We saw just previously to this the, the leper being cleansed of his illness in chapter 5, verse 13. Furthermore, it's been demonstrated that he has the power to, to cast out demons. And we saw that in chapter 4, verse 31 to 36, and again in chapter 4, verse 41. So it's kind of a curious thing, isn't it, that, that he points this out. He's, and he's not suggesting that, that the power to heal kind of comes and goes with Jesus, that somehow sometimes it's all upon him and other times it's not. That's not uh, consistent with uh, the teaching. So we have to ask ourselves, is it because he's trying to describe uh, something important to what's happening here in this particular teaching environment, in this particular audience? As I was thinking about that, because I was mindful of what we've seen already, is you remember he was in Nazareth and he was rejected outright, wasn't he? Uh, the, the people from his own hometown uh, didn't want to have... Uh, anything to do with him, not after he uh, read there from Isaiah and, and stated uh, that it had been fulfilled in their hearing. Um, and perhaps, is Luke suggesting maybe this is a similar kind of event, like in his hometown where the other gospel writers say he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. That's the Mark chapter 6 describes uh, in that way, verses 5 and 6. Or, or maybe Matthew, he records it, he just says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's Matthew 13, 58. If that's what Luke's getting at, perhaps he's trying to highlight then the faith of these men in contrast to the, the Pharisees, the, uh, the immediate audience. Perhaps there's not much going on in the healing sense there, and then but there's these men of faith that are going to bring their paralytic friend. Maybe that's a possibility. Or, or maybe it's just Luke's way of saying that Jesus is engaged in a lot of healing uh, at this place on this particular day. Although I don't think that's it uh, uh, in particular. I think more likely, and uh, uh, we need to begin to think about deeper considerations that Luke is trying to draw us into and consider that are highlighted by what Jesus is ultimately going to say to the paralytic when he is in front of him, to help us to consider more seriously the issue of sin and our need for forgiveness that goes above and beyond the 
the need for physical healing. Maybe have you considered that? Yeah, because this this paralytic is going to be there, and obviously, what I think is of concern to him and to his friends is that he's paralyzed, right? That he he needs physical healing, and I think most of us would look at that and say, yes, this man needs to be healed. And you think about our own prayer life, uh, and I, again, please understand, I'm not I'm not denigrating this in any way. We're called to pray for the sick. We're called to pray for our own sick needs. Uh, that, that's, that's not wrong. But sometimes I think if we look at our prayer life, we, we might give, get the impression that that's kind of the most paramount thing uh, in our lives, isn't it? The, 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 the top and almost end all of our prayer list is uh, oftentimes the, the physical. And Yet something more important is to draw our attention here in what's happening at this house on this certain day with this paralytic. Yes, Jesus is there, and as Luke points out very plainly before the event unfolds, the power to heal is in him. The power of the Lord is with Christ to be able to, to heal people of their infirmities. That's not in question. But he's drawing us to something greater, another power that Jesus has. And that is power on earth, verse 24, to forgive sins. It's interesting, two words that are used there in verse 17, the Greek word dunamis, which I think many of you are, are familiar with, that Greek word that's speaks of power. It's a word, uh, a root, a Greek word, root word from which we ultimately ended up getting uh, our word dynamite, that kind of power. Um, and uh, it, it has the idea of power, strength, capability of a force, force not, not like Star Wars, the force, but just, you know, you think about the, the ability to do work, to do something. He has power. He has power to heal. And yet in verse 24, the power word is a different word in Greek. It's a word that speaks of power that comes from privilege or authority or the freedom to act as he chooses, the way a potentate has jurisdiction over something. That's power. That's the power he has over sin, over forgiveness of sins. And in in this encounter, Luke has brought us almost to the pinnacle of something that goes all the way back. There's been a whole line, a whole series of events that I was going to say began at his public ministry there at the beginning of chapter 4, and I think that's legitimate, but actually we can actually go back even further. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25 to 32, we encounter a man named Simeon, and we studied this when we went through Luke chapter 2, so I'm not going to review the text. You can do that for your homework uh, if if you need to brush up on it. But you may recall Simeon, he is in the temple, and he had been told by the Holy Spirit that he 
uh, wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. In fact, it tells us that he would he was waiting for an interesting phrase, the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. The one who will bring comfort and consolation. These ideas come from Isaiah uh, and his prophecy. And I, that I will turn to. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40, if we will, just for a, a moment. I, I can read for you if you uh, don't have time, but I know you all have your Bibles. and So Isaiah chapter 40 and uh, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Speak comfort to my people. Their iniquity is pardoned. The warfare is at an end. Oh, this is, this is the consolation, the comfort that is, is being awaited by Simeon in the coming Messiah. And, uh, and of course, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, this is familiar to us. And this does bring us to the beginning of uh, the earthly ministry of, of Jesus, as we read there when he was in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Uh, and it goes down uh, to comfort all who mourn and to console those who mourn in Zion. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The power of the Lord is at work in him. And Luke has been showing us a sequence of events in Jesus' ministry ever since the public ministry began. And he makes that great declaration in this, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And, and Luke has been showing us vignettes about Jesus' ministry where these things have been unfolding. That he's been healing. He's been casting out demons. He's been delivering them by healing them from sickness. He's been setting them at liberty from the, the dominion of, of demonic possession. There's been that physical healing. There's been the, the demons cast out. But there would not be, nor could there be, any true liberty for any of them or any of us unless ultimately our sin could be forgiven. How can we have peace with God if our sin isn't dealt with? And that is what we're, the, the, if you will, almost the climax of, uh, of these vignettes that, that Luke has been presenting ever since the public ministry began is now coming to a fullness and it all ties back to this consolation of Israel. It all comes back to the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And, and so it, 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 of course, like I said, not that I'm, I would ever question it, that it would be, it's not by accident that this phrase is put here by Luke, that the power of the Lord was present with him, in him. You know, that the power of the Lord, that phrase is only used here in Luke. And it's only found one other place in Scripture. Now, the idea, I understand, is, is other places, but 
It's only placed one other place, and you'll, you'll never guess where. It's in Exodus. It's in Exodus chapter 12, in fact. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 41. Now, I'm going to be reading from the Old Testament here, and the translation is going to be a little different. You're going to say, well, I don't, I don't know um, if that's the same. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That's, that's, you, I just read the armies of the Lord, but you know, in the Septuagint translation, and that's um, the, the Greek translation of, uh, of the Old Testament, it's the one that was in common parlance in, in Jesus' day and in Luke's day. That passage says, and the power of the Lord, right? Because that's that dunamis. The, the, it's not just referring to the people, the armies. It is the power, the Lord of hosts, the power of the Lord. And notice the context. It's in the context of God's, his summary power, his, 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 his divine power releasing Israel from 430 years of bondage in Egypt. And Luke is telling us right here that the Spirit of the Lord, Luke 4.18, Jesus read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And now Luke tells us in Luke chapter 5, and the power of the Lord is working through Jesus. He is at work and he is delivering people not just from physical ailment, as, as wonderful as that is. Jesus has come to forgive people of their sins, to bring the ultimate consolation, not just to Israel, but to the spiritual Israel, to all those whom he would call from both Jew and Gentile. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, this is the, what about Jesus? He, he, this is the authority, the power that Jesus has. Uh, and this is what he has come to do. Well, that's the end of verse 17. And it's there for a reason, right? And I hope uh, maybe this is helpful. You say, you would, God hasn't put anything in there that's superfluous. Uh, it, it, it's, it's all there for us to dive into and, and, and to think about. And when something makes you scratch your head, man, that's the time to really, you know what? You need to not just run forward. We need to stop and think, why, why is this? I mean, that's, you know, because sometimes those things just strike us funny, don't they? It's like, well, why, why mention the power to heal all of a sudden? And we know we can heal. Well, that's already been demonstrated. No, this is... He wants us to see there's something greater going on. He does have the power to heal physical ailments, but he has a greater power. The power he has come to be the fulfillment of all that Isaiah spoke of. The Old Testament was pointing to the coming Messiah, the consolation of Israel, the one that would restore peace, not peace politically, but peace with God. All right, well, we'll look at that some more when we get down a little further. But let's take a look, though, at verse 18. Behold, men brought a man uh, on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, right? And, and if you're like me, you've probably known, have friends that are paralyzed. It's a terribly 
just debilitating situation to be in. It, it affects every aspect of your life. Uh, I've got a friend from high school who's a quadriplegic, lives over in OB now. Uh, I've tried to re- been reconnecting with him a little bit, and um, but you know, obviously, he there's not a lot he can do that he used to be able to do, right? He's confined to uh, a wheelchair. He, he fortunately can. He can kind of tilt uh, one of his arms a little bit so he can knock it against a little ball uh, to, to move. He, he actually gets around a lot better than I thought he would um, when I had first heard about his situation. But nonetheless, I wouldn't w- want to underplay it. He's, he's a quadriplegic, uh, and that has radically, obviously, altered his life, um, as he says. And um, you know, he's been that way since his uh, late 30s. Um, being paralyzed is is a debilitating and even in our modern day generally uh, not very well treated is it we understand that um, and so imagine these guys have a friend and he's 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 paralyzed and they hear that Jesus is in town we don't even know if they're locals uh, Luke doesn't tell us that but they they're near enough. They've, they've carried him to uh, the place. It seems like they probably are uh, in the general locality. They bring him, and they sought to bring him in, and they, they want to bring him before Jesus. They want to lay him down there so that Jesus could touch him and heal him. They've no doubt heard that he's able to do that, and they believe in that. But they could not get in. They couldn't find out how they can get him in there. The crowds are so big. Now, houses of that day weren't that big anyway. And so by the time you've got the elites that are there, and keep in mind the the scribes, those teachers of the law, uh, they were accustomed to and, and generally deferred to. They got the best seats in the synagogue. They got the best seats pretty much wherever they went. They were uh, very much revered as teachers of the law and so you can imagine Jesus is in there. You've got the scribes and the Pharisees have, have come from all over. They're probably packing out the house as it is. And then everybody else is, is there uh, around the whole entry. And who knows how far back they get. But these guys can't get there. And, and keep in mind, it's not like they can just push their way in as you might want to. They've got to carry this guy on a bed. And I can't imagine what it was like for him to to be lying there, and you know he has no control over what's happening to him. I just want put yourself in this situation, and it it kind of looks hopeless. You get to a big event, and probably all of you at some point in your life have have been excited to go to some event, and you finally get there, and you realize, wow, I'm not. There's nosebleed, and then there's outside the event kind of bleed. You don't even get to get in and you realize, you know what? Well, if you're like me, you probably just turn around and go home because you don't even want to fool with it anymore. But these guys don't do that. No, they, they, are, they are tenacious uh, about this. He, he, they've got this friend. He can't get anywhere on his own. Crowds are, are packing him in. They're legitimate barriers and legitimate barriers that could easily discourage a person. Like I said, I'm, for me, uh, depending on what the stakes are, I, I, I'm the kind of person that just kind of, eh, whatever. 
I'll try it again later. Um, again, depending on what the stakes are. Um, but it is possible to just kind of give up and resign yourself to your situation, right? Yeah, it would have been a, a situation where somebody legitimately could have said, well, you know, we did our best. We tried to get you there, but maybe this is just not, that's not the Lord's will for you. Though we might say that because we're often trying to discern God's secret will uh, for ourselves and for others and trying to figure that out, even though we don't really, we, we don't know God's secret will or it wouldn't be secret, right? Um I want you to note, though, that that in itself is not an issue of a lack of faith, right? If they had turned around, that wouldn't have indicated they lacked faith. They had the belief in Jesus and his power. That's what brought them there in the first place. Um, if they couldn't get in to see him, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have faith. It just means they realize, you know what, we couldn't get, get in. And they might have resigned it to, well, you know what? This wasn't the Lord's will that you be healed. Otherwise, he would have made a way. To some people, we, we, we kind of we play these mental gymnastics, right, with trying to figure out, like, what again, what is God's secret will? Um, I don't know what God's secret will is, and neither do you. <laughs> we, all we can do is live life that is uh, according to his revealed will as best we can. Um, but I just wanted to make note that it wouldn't have been necessary. We wouldn't want to condemn their faith if they had said, you know what, we can't get you there. We tried and we love you. But I want you to note, though, that this faith of theirs is a strong one and it's coupled with compassion. Right? I mean, as I read this, I, that's running through my head, it just seems to scream off the page. These, are, these people have a tenacity and are determined, no matter what it takes, we not only believe Jesus can heal, right? But we are going to do whatever it takes because we care about our friend, right? We're, we're going to go above and beyond to get him there. And so their faith is demonstrated in the lengths to which they end up going, right? Because if you don't really believe you've got a shot, if you don't really believe that Jesus could do this, you would not go to the trouble uh, of what they have done, right? I mean, who's going to risk the wrath of a homeowner coming down on them after you've torn their ceiling apart and dropped your friend through? I mean, <laughs> think about that. This is not their house. They are taking it upon themselves to go up on the roof and tear the tiles and the, 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 the ceiling material off to make a big enough hole to put a human being on a bed down through it by ropes. Now, I don't know about you, but if, I, if I'm hosting friends in my house and suddenly there's a scratching at my chamber door, as Poe would say, or rather at the, at the ceiling and dust and plaster starting to come down, I'm going to go ape, Right? And I suspect you would too. Now, if I'm on the other end, I'm going to have to really consider my options and think, do I want to put myself in this line of fire? That's some faith, isn't it? Right, these guys are convinced. I, I, 
that, that Jesus can heal if they can just get him there. Or they wouldn't have gone to all of this trouble. And their compassion is likewise demonstrated through the action. Because not only do they have faith that Jesus can do this, but they are willing to put themselves in some risk. I think there's some risk here. Maybe you don't. Um, and they're willing to go through a lot of work. They go around and find the stairway or the ladder. We don't know which, but those were both common ways depending on the house because they typically had a flat roof where they did a lot of stuff because their houses were kind of dank and dark. And so if you wanted sunshine, you're going up on the roof. If you want to dry things, you, lots of stuff happened on the roof of their houses. So they were flat and they typically had a stairwell, an exterior stair up to the, the roof, or if there wasn't the room or maybe not as well off a house, they would have a ladder. But one way or the other, these guys had to not only carry their friend, they had to carry him up on the roof, and then they got to tear everything apart um, and do this. That's, that's some love, folks. If I call you up and say, hey, Julius, I need, I need a little help Saturday. If you could maybe, you know, come over, pick me up, carry me down to so-and-so. And, you know, if you could carry me up on the roof of, uh, of a place, I, I really just wanted to get in to see this teacher. And, you know, if you could help, if you could help me break in, just use some of your skills, your mechanic skills, and we could maybe break into a place because I really, really need to see this person. I can see Julia smiling, and I'm guessing uh, I'd find out he, he doesn't care for me that much. Um, and that's okay, right? <laughs> um, these guys, they really love this person. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to a lot of work. And I, I just, just in this, before we even get to Jesus' declaration, I just think what a wonderful picture this is of, of the dynamic that that the scriptures tell us should exist within the body of Christ. When you think about Paul's descriptions, metaphoric descriptions that he writes to the Corinthian church of the unity that we have, even though we are very diverse. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul describes how we, we have different gifts, we have different functions, just like a body. There's an eye, there's hands, there's ears. We're, we're not all hands, we're not all eyes, we're not all ears, and, and we're so thankful to the Lord that we're not, right? And we don't need just a bunch of eyes and no hands, or you know, where would the hearing be if we were only eyes? He says, but yet there is a unity because we all, we all come together, we all serve one another, we all help one another. We see that uh, in, in some smaller uh, sense in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, talking about diversity of gifts once again. And yet when we're looking at Corinthians, Corinthians 12 moves right into a very famous uh, chapter that almost everybody knows, even people that aren't Christians, which is uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, where he talks about the necessity of agape, that is love. He says all of this diversity and unity that we have is ultimately connected in Christ by the love that we have for Jesus and the love we have for one another. He says if the love component's not there, then this is all meaningless. It's pointless. And 
that agape, that love that is a, a, a devotion to one's good. It's not, you know, this kind of modern warm fuzzy. It's, it's not emotionalism by any means. It doesn't mean there isn't an, we don't have emotion connected with it oftentimes, but it, it transcends that. It, it's something deeper than that. It's very, uh, it, it's of the will. This is something we choose. We, we choose to set our affections upon people. It's just like these friends, they're choosing to express this love for their paralyzed friend by taking him and doing this uh, in faith. And Paul says, you know, with, without that, oh, without that, we don't have a functioning unity. And, and so in writing to the Galatians, and I'm going to turn there real quick, because I just, this, this wonderful reminder and picture that, that I see demonstrated in, in this little vignette in, in the Gospel of Luke, and yet this is, this is the calling we have. Not just physical needs, but listen, uh, Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what Paul says. This is what we're called to. Bury one another's burdens, even spiritual burdens. John, in writing his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, talks about the necessity of, of praying for one another and praying for those difficult situations, praying for those the issues of sin in another person. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. This is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, and this is the dynamic that we have or to, are to have with one another. Uh, this is what Christ has done for us. That's why I love how, how he writes it in the Galatians, so fulfill the law of Christ. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, this is exactly what Christ has done for us, he says. He bore our burdens. Right? He's not asking you to do something that he hasn't done at a greater level. Right? We can't bear one another's burdens in terms of, of paying for their sin. But Jesus has done that. Jesus bore our burden to the very point that our sin was laid upon him. That, 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 that he took the very punishment, the eternal weight of, uh, of punishment that should have been mine or yours, was laid on Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Christ has done for us. And Paul says, you know, this how we, how we fulfill the law of Christ is that we do this for one another. We bear one another's burdens. Not in a sin-bearing way, not like Jesus, but we help one another, right? We help do really what these guys do physically, we do spiritually. Right? These people physically bring their friend to Jesus. And that's what you and I are called to do for one another. To bring each other to Jesus. So that we, we can receive the healing that only Jesus can bring. That we can receive the forgiveness. We aren't the imparters of that forgiveness. Don't get me, don't don't misconstrue that. But you and I lift each other up and repoint one another 
to our loving Savior, the one who bore our burdens. And can that get tiresome? Sure. That's why, why do you think Paul reminds the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3.13, do not grow weary in doing good? Because sometimes it gets that way, right? I suspect most of you have somebody in your life that is just a constant mess. That no matter how, I mean, you just, you know, you feel like you've take, you take two steps forward and they take three steps back. I mean, you just think to yourself, what? And, and, and you maybe have gotten weary sometimes. Maybe you've thought, you know what, this is it. I, just, I know where he's going to end up. I know what she's going to do next. I mean, it looks good for a moment. But I, I'm just, we're going to be back here. We're going to be down this road again. And you may have said to yourself, I just don't know if I can do it again. I don't know if I can keep bearing this burden of bringing them back to Jesus. That's doing good. And Paul says, don't grow weary in it. I know sometimes it, it can wear you down. <laughs> doing good you know it sounds like something they do well we're doing good that should just be easy you went in some ways it is right but a lot of times it's not and satan uses those opportunities to hurl those arrows at us and say it's pointless we just give up on this person right don't don't, don't you gotta draw a line you gotta cut them off now, I'm not talking about enabling or, or, or something. You know, there may be issues that you need to deal with. There may be physical situations. You may, I'm not, you know, don't just keep handing them money if it's going the wrong place or anything else. But bringing people to Christ is always the right place to go. And we need to never give up on that. Don't grow weary. In doing good, I just love the, the the these people. These it's so interesting. The nameless people, and we don't know their name. We're I can't wait till we get to heaven, and we're one of those days we're up there, and we're just gonna maybe bump into oh, yeah, you you were one of those guys of faith that carried his buddy up the oh, you carried, you dropped him down the roof. What was that like? Were, were you a little nervous? Because I don't even know your name. Tell me your name. There they are. They're going to be up there, I think. You know, some, some faith. According to Jesus, he saw their faith, so I'm, I don't have to question that. Well, as you try to think about the spectacle of this man being lowered through the ceiling, it isn't the central issue that Luke is conveying, is it? You're saying, well, you certainly made it the central issue of tonight's lesson. Yeah, maybe I spent a little too much time on that. I don't know. But I just, it just kind of touched me, and I, I think it's, it's worthwhile. But as, as, much, as much as we've pulled out of that, it pales in comparison with the shock of what Jesus says to that man in verse 20. I mean, you think about that. I mean, again, we, we, we've, got, we've got dust and dirt falling from the, from the sky, and in the middle of Jesus 
the the the, 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 the Messiah, they're speaking and teaching everybody, and all of this happens. This, is, this must have been a, a terrible spectacle. They drop him down there. And that doesn't begin to touch what the spectacle of what Jesus says. When he says, and, and notice this, nobody says a word. It just says that they drop, they put him through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, we'll talk about their faith, right? These men, these are all men of faith. And that was so important that you and I, as men and women of faith, we help others, we help our friends. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Wow. Who. They, they forget tiles, forget people being lowered. This man, the teacher, just claimed to forgive somebody of their sins. I mean, consider the bold, the brashness of that statement if you're just a person. I mean, let's just think about it purely on human terms of interaction. I mean, who is he to forgive sins that are done to another person? I mean, if you sin against me and somebody else comes up and, and says to you, oh, you know what, you're forgiven for what you did to John. I'd be like, whoa, I didn't forgive him. I, I will forgive you, by the way. But I'm just saying, but hey, you know, some third party comes along and, and says, you know what, Julius, you're forgiven. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't help John break in, but he, you know what, you're, you're forgiven for that. I'm not, I'm, Julius is the center square on Zoom tonight, so I'm just seeing his face right there. Sorry, I'm not picking on you, Julius. Uh, but uh, something more serious, somebody, if somebody really wronged me and, and uh, somebody else comes along and tells that person, oh, you're forgiven, you know, that our, I think our natural inclination would be, well, who gives you the right? I'm, I'm the only one that can forgive him. He did it to me. But more importantly, the sin is not just a, something restricted to human interaction. It has to do with our, our relation to God. It's an offense against God. And so who is Jesus to be able to say to a man, to a woman, your sins are forgiven you. I'm going to forgive something that you have done against God. Because that's ultimately where sin resides, who sin is against. It's against God. You remember Psalm 51, David writing in uh, that psalm about his sin uh, with Bathsheba when Nathan the prophet had gone to him uh, about that sin. Let's just read um, quickly the first four verses there. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's quite a statement there. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He, he's not downplaying what he's done, by the way. And Because you're probably saying, well, I think you sinned against Bathsheba in that you um, committed adultery with her, so then you also committed uh, a sin against Uriah because Bathsheba was his wife. And then, of course, you, you had Uriah killed on the battlefield. Um, that I would take that kind of personally, uh, as most would. But ultimately, sin is against God. He uses three words there. And if we had more time, we'd get through them all. But I'm just going to briefly touch on those and then we'll pick up and dive in a little more because we need to be thinking about what sin is because that's, you know, what, that's what Jesus is bringing our attention to here uh, and our need to forgive. But uh, first off, there's a word there, transgressions in the, in the Hebrew, pesha, uh, means to rebel or revolt against an individual, a nation, or against God. Uh, it speaks of a breach of relationships um, between two parties, uh, and it's a rejection of God's authority. That's one word he used there. The other is iniquity, uh, awan uh, in the Hebrew. An interesting word there, that root comes from the word to bend or twist or distort, um, to make crooked or to pervert something. Proverbs 12, 8 uses it this way, a man of perverse heart will be despised. Um, Isaiah 53, 6, it's used in a, the noun like this in a collective sense. It's singular, uh, that our, our iniquities, our, our, our iniquity is laid upon Jesus. The, the collective, uh, the totality uh, of our twisted uh, sin. Um, because it, it denotes, and it's an interesting way it's used in Hebrew, it denotes both the deed and the consequences of the deed, uh, the misdeed and the punishment are, are all wrapped together. You can't, can't separate them out. Your iniquity, your perversity comes with uh, its requisite punishment, and those go hand in hand. That's always through the scripture, isn't it, right? That our iniquity has a, an associated punishment, that you can't, you can't tear those apart. You can't somehow say, the oh, freebie, I'm just going to uh, go sin without consequence. No, there's always, there's always consequence, and either you're going to pay for it or Jesus will have paid for it. Uh, and thank speed of the Lord that he laid our iniquity upon him. That's one of the other word. And then the other word there, sin, we're familiar with that, chata in the Hebrew. And that comes, that's an archery term, at least initially, comes from the idea of missing the mark or missing the way. Right, So I aim at something and I, I don't quite hit it. I miss it. It's a failure to observe God's law or uh, an action that gives less than is due. Right, Falling short, missing the mark. I may have been trying to go the right way, but I didn't hit it. Right, Paul sums that up when he says, all have done what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all hit, we've all, even if you thought you were heading towards the mark, you didn't hit it. You missed it. You missed the mark. Um, it's a failure of full duty or a failure to respect the full rights and interests of another, in this case, 
That would be God. Uh, it's a quality of being that is less than acceptable. This is all wrapped up into this idea of sin. And David uses three different words there uh, to try to capture the fullness, the totality of his sin, which he points out is against God and no one else. And ultimately, this man's sin, the paralytic, his sin is against God. And your sin and my sin is against God. No wonder the Pharisees are scandalized by this statement, right? Your sins have been forgiven. That's God's prerogative, and we'll look at that next week. But they're right in understanding. Their statement is true. No one can forgive sins except God alone. All right, but we'll we'll have to pick up again next week. So we'll we'll take a look at that. We'll kind of revisit the some uh, little details of the sin issue that uh, I've had to rush through, and then look at what Jesus is doing, and what he is declaring, uh, and what uh, they witness there uh, at this very uh, important event there uh, in this home on that certain day.